Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of The Legal Wolf. Today I'm delighted to be joined by India Jefferson Grant on today's episode of The Legal Wolf. Morning India. Good morning Stephen, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? Yes, doing well, thank you very much. Good. So, first of all, just for the listeners, if you could give a background in regards to your route into law and also the route in you becoming a legal executive. Of course. So, as you said at the beginning, my name is India Jefferson Grant and I have been practising mental health law for nearly seven years now, so it's been a while. Okay. Um, I'm a qualified chartered legal executive lawyer um, and I solely specialise in mental health law. So, how I came into this kind of occupation was that I I went to college and I studied for my A-levels and then I went to a university called Queen Mary University of London and that's where I studied for my law degree. Then that was a three-year course and once I'd obtained that I had to start thinking a bit harder about what route I wanted to take into law because there most people only know about the solicitor and barrister route Um, but I had heard a lot about becoming a chartered legal executive And I applied for a job as a trainee lawyer at a local high street law firm back where I'm from in Hampshire. And I started, uh, I got that job and I started training in three areas of law. So it was mental health, personal injury and clinical negligence. So it was was quite a a lot at the time doing all three of those. Um, But the firm were really kindly willing to support me through the process of becoming a chartered legal executive. Um, so that was the route I decided to take and because I had already done my law degree I was able to skip lots of parts of the usual route so instead what you do is uh, a postgrad course called the graduate fast track diploma and that involved completing two practice units and a client care skills unit and you do that part-time while still working as a trainee lawyer full-time So once you've done all the exams and you've passed them, you have to build a portfolio called a work-based learning portfolio, um, which demonstrates that you meet the required learning outcomes um, set by by the Institute. And at that stage, I'd already completed two years of what they call qualifying employment. um, But you have to complete a further one year of that employment um, and then submit your portfolio with an application and once that's all done, I was accepted as a fellow of the Chartered Institute Executives. And that means that I'm a Chartered Legal Executive. Now, that, that sounds rather rigorous. Um, <laughs> can, can, <laughs> yeah, compared to the usual route, I mean, that sounds like a, a lot of work, a lot of perseverance to get to where you've got to. And I think the thing is, you well, from uh, speaking with other people who have obviously gone the, down the solicitor's route, um, a, a lot of people who do the LPC tend to do it full-time, not necessarily working in a law firm full-time at the same time. Yeah. But I do know that other people have done the um, LPC whilst well, as a part-time course, which seems quite similar to, to the route I did. Yeah. But the difference between... Um, being solicitor and a legal executive is more so that the the training route to becoming a legal executive is narrower than the solicitor route 
So although you st- all study to the same level, so we're at the same level, yeah. I've studied fewer subjects overall in my postgraduate work. So um, when I was doing the practice unit, I actually did civil litigation and employment law, interestingly enough, <laughs> not something I'm doing now. Um, whereas I think, uh, as you know, Steve, I think as a solicitor, I think you have to do quite a few few subjects don't you yeah so we uh have to do three seats or four seats if you can't get time knocked off for being a paralegal so in my three seats i did mental health civil litigation personal injury and all of that and then i did family law which i hated with a passion (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's so many times that you can deal with divorces and who gets the uh dog for instance i mean (laughs) there's only so much that that you can cope with that whereas at least with mental health there is a lot of variety within the area of law and what was the reason for you going down the mental health law route so this it's quite interesting actually because where I went to a London law school, it was very corporate biased. So you know it, the focus was on uh, becoming a commercial lawyer in yeah. a big London law firm. Yeah. That is what the majority of my peers wanted to do. I, <laughs> I mean, I went along to commercial law study groups and things like that, and I was just like, this is really. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I just knew instantly that was not something I wanted to do. And yeah. so although I was living in London at that time and I loved living there and everything like that, I, I knew that it would be better for me to return back down south um, on the south coast and, and try and get something uh, in a, a smaller law firm because yeah. I felt like I would have more of a kind of bespoke service and training process, which, which I really did. Yeah. And as I said earlier, I, I was training in three different areas, um, the personal injury, clinical negligence, and mental health, quite similarly to you, actually. Yeah. Um, and although I did like those other areas, I knew when I started doing the mental health, I, was, I just knew it, it, that's where my passion lay. And it was interesting because, as I say, it wasn't something that I ever was taught at university. It never came up. It wasn't, to be honest with you, it wasn't even an area of law that I really knew existed necessarily. Yeah because it's so niche um, and specialist. And so when I started doing that in, in um, and I had a lady training me who was really fantastic at the job and, and also had a significant passion for that area of law, that's how I kind of developed my passion into it. And when once I'd qualified, I knew that I wanted to specialise solely in that area and that is exactly what I did straight away. Yes, it, it it's interesting because there's not many people that specialise in mental health law were taught it no. on either on the LLB or the LPC. And it it's quite amazing that it's not promoted more, particularly on an LLB law degree. And say, for instance, you, you could pick it as one of your options in year three. I totally agree. I think there was one, when I think back to university, I think there was one um, course that was called Medical Ethics. And I think, because I had some friends who, who did that, I think that might have touched on the mental health act, but I don't, there was no, you know, specific mental health law uh, module that you could do. And like you say, I think it's really interesting that it's not because 
number one, you know, mental health is spoken about so much more nowadays. Yep. Uh, it's in the media, it's, you know, it's everywhere. But yep. it also, it, there's lots of different areas of law that come into mental health. So, you know, human rights. Yep. Um, so, so it's, it's really, and you know, in mental health, people's freedom has been taken away from them. I mean, there's no, you know, that's so important, isn't it? To be, yeah. for them to have representation. Um, but it isn't necessarily something you think about until you go into the practice and, and you know, and you see it in practice. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and then obviously moving on to the role working in mental health law, what would you say are the, the pros and cons of the job? Okay, so I am quite biased because I absolutely <laughs> love the work in this area. So I think there are a lot more pros than cons. Yeah. Um, but in terms of a couple of the pros, I would say one is the fact that you are helping people who genuinely need it. And, yeah. you know, these are people who are often going through the hardest time of their life. Uh, they're dealing with an incredibly complex and scary situation where their freedom's been taken away from them. Um, and in my opinion, to be able to assist them and make things a bit easier for them feels like a privilege to me. Yes. Um, and actually, the majority of the time, the clients really appreciate and are grateful to you for your help, which I think sometimes I found in some of the clinical negligence work I used to do, they, uh, they were not as grateful. <laughs> 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 um, whereas I do find that because they, a lot of these people are detained under section, it's such a difficult position to be in. And you're, you are giving them the help that they need and helping them understand the complex situation that they're in. They are really appreciative of, of your assistance. And you f it's that genuine feeling that you actually are helping people who need it. You know, because I know yeah. you do it as obviously, Steve. And do, do you know what I mean about yeah. that? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. The, the job satisfaction is probably one of the highest you will get in an area of law when you Absolutely. and and the discharges are probably a lot less now than what they used to with all the hearings being on video or on telephone but the small wins in terms of either getting them transferred from an intensive care unit to an acute ward or getting them granted escorted or even on escorted leave or instructing an independent social worker who just so happens to find a place ideal for your client. Yeah. Those are the key key points because you're not going to get discharges every day in this job. It, oh, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for sure. And actually, that was one of the um, cons of the job that I was going to say. It wasn't not getting people discharged, but I think that, and you will have probably seen this as well, as you just mentioned, where we now have video hearings because of yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic, I and my colleagues are finding that uh, the tribunal panels are more risk-averse, uh, some of them are anyway, yeah. um, and when it's quite difficult when you have a you think you've got quite a good case um, and they still don't discharge the patient, uh, you are, <laughs> I'm finding that a lot more in these video tribunal hearings yeah. than the face-to-face -face ones. Yeah. Um, which is somewhat frustrating and that would be a con um another con that i would say is that it's more it can be a bit of a lonely job sometimes because particularly yeah. when you're traveling across the country in your car you go and see a client you get back in your car you know you're on your you're on your own a lot of the time yeah um but 
that it's definitely the pros of the job definitely outweigh that and I think that in this sort of realm of work you are working alongside lots of people in different areas who are incredibly kind and caring and they've got a lot of emotional intelligence and I, I imagine you're the exact same that you've met a lot of interesting people in this field of work not just in mental health law but just in mental health as as a field generally oh yeah yeah uh, I'm, I'm in um clients are obviously very interesting um because yeah. no one client's the same they all have their own back story and reason for being in hospital and then you've got all the professionals your community nurses social workers doctors nurses um they have a very difficult job yeah absolutely i totally agree i i think it like you say no one client is the same and actually that is another pro to the job yeah. because your none of your days are the same i don't ever, i don't think i've ever had no. a day in doing this nearly seven years where the day has been you know the same as another day it, it, they're always different and even if you've got two clients with the exact same diagnosis of mental disorder they're still not the same they've got a different background they have different symptoms they yeah. have different thoughts and i actually really like that individualistic approach that you have to take to every single case you have oh yeah yeah i mean you can't take a um one case suits all approach you have to tailor the way you interact with patients. You have to ta tailor the way that you explain things to patients because some will explain will be able to understand things a lot easier than others, depending on what their diagnosis is. Definitely, definitely. And are there any case examples that you're able to give in terms of any complex cases that you've had throughout the seven years yeah so i mean i think what the first case example i would give would be a section two matter so just to explain for the listeners if somebody is detained under section two of the mental health act uh, they can be detained for up to 28 days and they have a right to appeal to the tribunal in the first 14 days of that section so at present due to all of our hearings being over video um, because of the pandemic the hearings have to then be listed within 10 days of the tribunal receiving the application. So as you can imagine, from those those small time frames, these cases are incredibly fast moving. Um, and yeah. that doesn't lessen the complexity, it actually increases it in my opinion, um, because you have to do lots of different things and lots of work, pre-tribunal work, in a very short amount of time. So that would include things such as reviewing section papers, um, assessing the legality of a patient's detention, reviewing their records, reviewing statutory reports which are prepared for the tribunal, and all the while obtaining your client's instructions as you go. Yeah. And matters can become particularly complex when your clients challenge some of the history stated within the reports as factual, and I've found that quite a lot in recent cases. So. I've had one recent case where the um, statutory reports were stating that my client was delusional about their involvement in certain governmental work. Yeah. Um, they were referred to as having delusions of grandeur um, and that they were basically making up what, what they were saying. But that particular client was actually able to send me over some online newspaper articles about, about the work they had done, which specifically stated their name. And 
so they served that to me on the morning of the tribunal, of course, as I say, lastminute.com <laughs> with everything. Yeah. Um, so I was actually able to serve those articles upon the tribunal on the morning of that hearing, and they were then discharged by the tribunal. So it's, you know, that it's doing those little things that might not be applicable in another case where somebody said to have delusions. Yeah. But when somebody has said to you, no, this is really true, I have evidence, you really have to listen because sometimes they do they genuinely do yeah. have the evidence to demonstrate that they are, are telling the truth. Um, and another one of my most memorable complex cases involved someone who experienced a stress-induced psychosis. Um, and that was their first experience of a mental health crisis. So they'd had no involvement with secondary mental health services before. And they sought help multiple times in the community because they knew something was happening. Um, they were becoming overwhelmed with work and things like that. And it was having an impact on their, their mental health. And so they attended their GP surgery. They attended A&E. And again, again and again, they were turned away. And they actually ended up doing something quite bad, mm -hmm. which resulted in them being detained under section and they were admitted to a medium secure unit, despite that being their first ever involvement with secondary mental health services. And it wasn't a restricted section either, it was a, um, a section three. So we applied to the tribunal on their behalf and um, there was a lot of substantial pre-tribunal work. So that, would inc that included a um, careful review of their records before and after the admission so we could yeah. see, we could get the evidence that they actually had tried to seek help again and again prior to coming into hospital um we obtained statements directly from their family and friends um which were able to evidence that the behavior before the admission was completely out of character um and we also did things like write to their responsible clinician in the hospital so to you know to to say to them what what in particular are you relying upon this is the law we don't think you can prove it so, you know, should, do you want to just look at discharging this patient now? And actually, this patient did get discharged in advance of the tribunal hearing, and they've never, never come back into hospital. So that is one that, that really sticks with me. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's a very good result, considering they're in a medium secure. Yeah, absolutely. Discharged straight from medium secure back yeah. home. So there was no uh, step down or anything. It was it was really good. Mm. They were very, you know, when somebody is incredibly insightful mm. into the situation and really wants to avoid that happening again. Yeah. Um, but I think that case uh, summarised to me that our community resources are so underfunded um, that people are turned away again and again or put on waiting lists in the community and then they just get, keep deteriorating until they then end up in hospital. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's really difficult. And I assume that that has only got worse since COVID. Oh, de I, I'm, I definitely think so because, well, we've our workload has gone through the roof since um, COVID. Yeah. Uh, because it's and it's impacting people who haven't necessarily suffered mental health issues before. Um, because it's having an impact on, I would say, the majority of people's mental health, to be honest with you, oh, yeah. um, without a shadow of a doubt. And so and then it's also awful for what I found. It's awful for people with mental health issues who, for example, had volunteering jobs in charity shops that gave them structure. Then they can't do that anymore. And the, their team aren't able to see them face to face. It was all these different things that are just having such a significant impact on people's mental health. It, it, it's astounding, really. Yeah, no, it, it is. Um, and 
I fear that it's probably only going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Um, Now, in terms of, obviously, the Mental Health Act, which, for the listeners, that is the act that we primarily deal with, what complexities in the law do you find most common? So, there's a few. I, I would say that one of the predominant complexities is Section 117 Aftercare and funding. Yep. Uh, I think that becomes... <laughs> ask any lawyer that and they will say the same. <laughs> yep. it, it, these issues can become so complex, um, particularly when there is what I would call a battle between various bodies about who should fund a patient's aftercare, um, that just, you know, that becomes incredibly complex. And I've actually had that in a recent tribunal case involving a restricted patient without capacity to appoint or instruct me. And that case actually dragged on for over one year because of placement identification and funding issues. So in the end, the tribunal actually granted me um, liberty to seek independent evidence So I was able to get a social work assessment report from a great social worker and he was able to identify an appropriate placement for for my client and then the patient got discharged. So it's it's quite interesting because, you know, you you get somebody involved and then everything starts moving again, whereas it can be delayed for, well, that was over a year. So that's a long time in someone's life in a hospital. Yeah, no, I had a similar case that went on for the same amount of time, but that was for a child suffering with autism. Oh my gosh, yes. And it, Incredibly it, complex cases. Yeah, it just went on and on, and mm-hmm. I got an independent social worker who found one. Social services weren't willing to fund it. Then when they were, there was an argument as to who pays what amount. Oh gosh. So... It, Section one one seven aftercare is a minefield, and it's it's as clear as mud because I don't think anyone really knows what it means. That's what I feel. I feel that people just literally wing it about yeah. that area of work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is not good, is it? I mean, if that is actually the case, and it's not, it, the law should be clear. It shouldn't be so complex that people can actually battle about who pays what and, and things like that it should be clear especially when this is people's lives these are yeah. people who are often don't need to be cared for in a hospital anymore and yet they are their their discharge is being delayed significantly and it's just yeah it's it's not right at all yeah would you, would you say another area that can be complicated is nearest relative oh definitely Definitely. Um, I think with nearest relative, it can become particularly complex. I mean, I've got a case where the nearest relative has sought discharge of the patient mm-hmm. and um, now there'll be a, bar- a hospital manager's barring hearing yeah. uh, and they'll be, they have the right to apply to the tribunal. I, won't, I don't tend to represent both client and nearest relative because of the potential for conflict of interest. Yeah. Um, because even though it sometimes seems like they're both going for the same thing, often one one will be like, I don't want them to know this, or I don't want them to know it. It just becomes too, yeah. you know, you can't then abide by your duties of disclosure and confidentiality. It's incredibly difficult. Okay. Um, but yeah, I do find the, the nearest relative, it just, that again, is another minefield. Do, do you find that particularly complex? Uh, 
I think it is complex, particularly when you try and explain to a patient what a nearest relative is. But the patient will always refer to them as next of kin. Yes, always. And definitely. and they're not the same. They're, they're, they're two different things, which I, I can now understand why in the Independent Mental Health Act review, they're looking at changing it so the patient can pick who their nearest relative is. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And I have, I have complicated views about that because I don't know when somebody's extremely unwell, yeah. are they going to make the best decision about who is their their nearest relative? But at the same time, I, I totally agree that it, this hierarchical system for a nearest relative is perhaps slightly outdated as well. And particularly if somebody, I think there should be an easier process to change their nearest relative. If they yes. feel, say, for example, you've got someone who's their mother is their nearest relative under Section 26 of the Mental Health Act, but they don't speak to their mother, they, they're estranged from them or something like that. There should be an easier process than going to court or getting them to delegate their functions to someone else. Because yeah. trying to get the nearest rele- relative to delegate their functions to someone else when the patient isn't even speaking with them is <laughs> not, yeah. not really an easy feat. No, no, abs- absolutely not. Um, th- that can be rather complex, and it can be m- more complex when nearest relative asks for discharge, doctor bars it, and then tries to remove nearest relative. Yes. Due yes. to not taking into account the welfare of the patient or others, and then you've got county court proceedings. And then if you're on a section two, that will get extended. And then that causes yeah. all sorts of complications because if the section two is extended for months, then the client would be entitled to have another tribunal and you would have to ask for it through Secretary of State um, yeah. reference. So that, that can get very complex as well. Oh, it can indeed, it can indeed. Yeah, and then in terms of crossover so we obviously deal with mental health acts but there's also mental capacity and there seems to be more and more crossover between the mental health act and the mental capacity act do you find that in your day-to-day dealings i would say i don't i don't find it lots and lots but i do find it does arise for certain for definite and i have had a variety of cases that have involved uh, a crossover in particular it usually comes to play when the person that i'm representing is assessed to lack capacity to make decisions about their care and treatment or living circumstances because that then obviously impacts where they're going to go from hospital so i have a case where a client has capacity to appoint and instruct me but they have a diagnosis of an eating disorder and are assessed to lack capacity to make decisions about treatment for their physical health. So that particular trust in charge of, of that patient's care now have to take the case to the Court of Protection for an order that treatment in the community will be in the best interests of the patient. So that becomes incredibly complex. It's not actually something, obviously, I am involved in on yeah. the Court of Protection side of things, um, but we are still involved in the case significantly in terms of the patient being detained under the se- section of the Mental Health Act. So there's that that crossover. And I've also found in, so for the listeners, in um, 
tribunal cases, we can often be appointed by the tribunal services when a patient is assessed as lacking capacity to appoint us. So often I've been appointed in cases where the patient hasn't had a hearing in three years, so it's a referral hearing, um, and they are said to have be lacking capacity to appoint me. I go and see the patient, they're in the community, and... <laughs> I mean, this has happened quite a few times. They're on extended Section 17 leave and have been for years. Yeah. Now that... And so um, I found... And they're obviously not challenging it uh, because they don't have the capacity to do so. And so then I've gone along to the tribunal and I've said, look, this person is not objecting to any element of their care or treatment. They're entirely happy where they are in the care home. Um, They don't ever question being there they don't ever try to leave they abide by their treatment yes they don't have the capacity to abide by their treatment or agree to it but they, but they are mm-hmm. um and it, on, on those occasions usually what's happened is the tribunal has adjourned to enable time to for a best interest assessor to go in and assess whether the deprivation of liberty safeguards and the mental capacity act can be used instead and quite often it has actually happened that they've been discharged and, and made subject to do that instead um, instead of the mental health act and i know a lot of i found i don't know whether you have seen but i found in um a lot of tribunals recently that when this is questioned whether whether somebody could be managed under the mental capacity act and dolls instead of the mental health act the consultant will say i think the mental health act offers more um safeguards for the patient than the mental capacity act and dolls yeah yeah, I, f- I found that quite a lot yeah. recently. But there, with dolls, you do have the Section 21A um, appeals procedure yeah. to the Court of Protection, and you have independent mental capacity advocates. So if you were contesting, they were, you are able to challenge. Yes. So I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't agree with that. Actually, I would say that the Mental Capacity Act and dolls do offer safeguards as well as the Mental Health Act. It just depends on what what which of the two options is the least restrictive way of managing that particular patient. And I think in practice, a lot of the time, it doesn't really have much of a, make much of a difference. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. I think it also depends on that doctor's level of knowledge of the Mental Capacity Act. Yeah, definitely. As to the reasons that, that they give in regards to, well, it should be the Mental Health Act for this and it, it shouldn't be the Mental Capacity Act for this, but I think some of the doctors don't fully understand the Mental Capacity Act. Yeah, I agree. I, I do agree. I think it's something that they will be primary, and that's why they rely solely upon the Mental Health Act and say that that is what the patient should be subject to as opposed to the Mental Capacity Act. Yeah. It's not necessarily because it's definitely the least restrictive way of treating them. It may be just because they don't, necessarily have the full knowledge of of how they could be managed under the mental capacity act yeah no absolutely um so what advice would you give to someone who is listening to this podcast and they want to specialize in mental health what what advice would you give and what do you feel the key qualities are okay so Starting with um, advice about anyone who's listening, um, I would firstly recommend that if you are thinking, actually, this sounds really interesting, I'd like to specialise in this area of law, 
I think you should firstly try and obtain some form of work experience in mental health. Obviously, that would be helpful if with a mental health lawyer, but I actually don't necessarily think the work experience needs to be in a law firm only. I think just having work experience in some area of the mental health field of work, that, that would be helpful in itself because it will teach you whether this is something that you actually will find interesting in practice um so that's the first thing i would recommend i would also say that you don't go into mental health law to make lots and lots of money (laughs) we are instructed on legal aid basis um so for the majority of cases we represent on a legal aid basis which means we have fixed fee it's it's you know it's not a massive money earner and you go into mental health law to help vulnerable people and advocate on their behalf yeah. to ensure that their voices are heard. And it, like I said earlier, for me, it's a privilege to work in this area of law, but you have to have the right mentality about why you're doing it. Yeah. Um, moving to key qualities, I think the primary key, key quality you need is resilience. And Steve, Stephen and I have both discussed earlier today about the fact that you often won't achieve discharges for your patients mm-hmm. because often you're dealing with incredibly unwell people. And you'll find that a lot of the time um, they may not think that they're unwell. And so they'll say, I want to be discharged. I don't want to take any medication. I don't want any involvement with mental health services. And that's what you have to put forward to the tribunal because that's your client's instructions. Um, and I think initially when you start doing this job and you're, you're, you've got your accreditation from the Law Society, so you're representing in tribunals and you aren't getting any discharges or you're getting the odd few, um, you start thinking, am I doing something wrong? But often you aren't it's just that as long as you're putting forward your client's case in the best possible and most arguable way you are doing your job but you have to have this element of resilience because you know in many other different areas of law the aim is you know to win it's always to win whereas i feel in this area of work that we're doing our goal is to make sure our client's voice is heard that's what that's that's winning for me um and so that, that's, a re- that's really important. I think you also need an ability to empathise with people. I think that's one of the most important things. Um, and as we've already discussed, no one client is the same. So you need to be able to understand what they're telling you about their lives, their views, and you have to take an individualistic approach to every single client you help. And empathy will help you with that. And lastly, one that I think is quite often not touched upon you really need to have a passion to do advocacy because this is obviously something normally people think, oh, barristers do advocacy. It's barristers who go into court or tribunals and do the representation. Yeah. But actually, as mental health lawyers, the, the majority, I would say, in my case, 98% of the time, we do our own advocacy. Yeah. Um, so that's something that you need to be happy to do. And it's something that cut, it, you don't learn it overnight. I, I look back at myself in my first tribunal I ever did and I think, oh my God. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I think back to my advocacy and I it just, it, comparing that to how I am now, it comes with practice. Yeah. Because it's not it's not something you can learn without doing it in practice. Um, but it is something you have to have pas- a passion for. So, you know, represent cross-examination of people, putting forward submissions. Um, that's something that you need to be interested in. And it's also, if you're somebody who felt like, oh, I like the idea of being a barrister, but I don't necessarily, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily exactly what I want to do. Then you could become a mental health lawyer and still be doing your advocacy with, if you're accredited. Um, 
and yeah, so I think that that's really important. And that's from uni. That if we're looking back at uni doing our learning about advocacy, that would be the mooting. Yes. Did you uh, ever do that, Stephen? Uh, no, I, 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 I never did the mooting. Uh, well, I think I think I probably did one session on it, and then I <laughs> quit instantly. Yeah, and then I did my professional skills course to qualify as a solicitor, and we had a three day advocacy on that, and it was so fake and rehearsed. It, I know. It 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 it, it just doesn't seem real. So no, it, it's difficult to get up for it. I totally agree. I did mooting. I think I did it once as well. And I was like, no, this is, this yeah. is not for me. I hate it. <laughs> and yet yeah. here I am now. I absolutely love advocacy. Yeah, <laughs> same. Not, I think what people, anyone listening today, they need to, um, with, with tribunals, mental health tribunals, it's inquisitorial rather than adversarial. So we're not trying to have like a massive fight in the yeah. tribunal you're trying to um disprove a case basically yeah no absolutely and finally just for a bit of fun what would you have been if you didn't become a legal exec so up until university i was flitting between either becoming a lawyer or going down the musical theatre route interesting thing um yeah i love acting singing and dancing and i i I did a lot of dancing as a child and then when i was at senior school i used to get good roles in the school productions um and i absolutely loved it so when i went to college i did um my a levels were drama and theater studies law history and english literature so it was a bit of a mixed bag and it was because i was trying to decide between oh which one should i do um but the reason i went to uni to do law in the end was because I did really well in the law A level, and so I was getting, I got 100% in, uh, I think it was three out of four of the exams, so I thought to myself, I would be a bit silly if I didn't follow that route, <laughs> if it's something I'm quite good at, but also, I think actually, when you are doing advocacy and hearings, it is a little bit like acting anyway, isn't it? Yeah. So I've got, I've got yeah. the best of both worlds there. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's, you have to put forward your case and be persuasive at the same time so yeah it is a form of acting and law so you you've just combined the two exactly i've combined the two what what would you have been if you um um i would probably and probably most blokes will say this but i'd probably be a footballer because you get a load of money well you, you you get a load of money for doing very little work I mean, that's like. That's that's like everyone's dream job to do as little as possible and get paid as much as possible. <laughs> Let's just say, don't go into mental health law if that's what you want to do. Well, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if you want to earn loads of money, mental health is not for you. Um, <laughs> as India has said, you need to have a passion for it in this realm but it is an incredibly interesting and fulfilling area of work um i love it i can't imagine myself doing any other area of law really um yeah so i I really speak to people if they are interested in finding out more about this area of work okay and what's the best way for people to get in touch with you 
probably on LinkedIn, I would suggest. Um, so my name on LinkedIn is obviously my full name, India Jefferson Grant. And so, yeah, if you if you follow me on there and uh, link up with me, you can direct message me any questions you have. More than happy to help. Okay, smashing. And on that note, that is the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining me, India. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been really fun today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That concludes today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it, everyone, and stay tuned for future episodes to be announced on the Legal Wolf LinkedIn page. Thank you.